Hi, everyone. I'm Megan Berg. And I'm Dr. Jeanette Benegas. And we are here to fix SLP. We are discussing the biggest challenges that are currently holding back the field of speech-language pathology. We present the issues with facts and invite you to be part of joining our movement to make things better, one conversation at a time. Let's fix SLP. Welcome back, Fearless Fixers. Today we have a guest, but before we get to that, Megan and I have a couple things we want to start with. Um, We're just going to jump in and read some five-star reviews. We asked you guys to pod your recordings, to rate, review, subscribe, and oh my gosh, have you delivered? Now the challenge is going to be like, let's double these numbers (laughs) because we just want to keep growing. But um. Okay, the first one she's going to read. Fantastic. They're so good. So, Megan, do you want to read us a couple of the uh, reviews? Sure. This is um, from 123Live123, who says, thank you, Fix SLP, for taking on Big Daddy Asha, which yes. we just want to clarify, like, that is not this person calling, like, she, this person is not individually calling Asha Big Daddy Asha. That is a running joke. <laughs> Yes. So if you're not sure about that running joke, I have no idea what episode we started lovingly referring to Asha as Big Daddy Asha. I assume it's like the first or second episode. So go binge. It's the holiday. Bake and listen to our voices. And um, yeah, I loved it. Megan sent me a screenshot of that and I died. It was great. (laughs) Thank you. One, two, three, live. One, two, three. Thank you. SLP2EA says, I'm mind blown by the information you guys are sharing. The work you're doing is so important for the field of speech language pathology. Thank you for forging ahead through the naysayers who, frankly, either don't know what they don't know or stand to profit from the broken system. Yeah. And Rower Girl 302 says, Jeanette and Megan take a no nonsense approach to demystifying all things ASHA. Agree or disagree, but transparency is key. I have been practicing for 30 plus years and learned something new during every episode. Keep up the good work. So yeah, thank you to everyone for leaving written reviews. And if you have time, please give us that five-star rating and leave a written review because that bumps us up so that we appear in front of more SLP eyeballs. I set these weird personal goals that mean absolutely nothing. And I often report in on them to Megan But my goal is to get us as the first suggestion when someone types fix into the search bar on Apple Podcasts. I have no idea how that works. At first, I thought, well, maybe it's alphabetical. But no, we're the third suggestion. And the ones under us are not alphabetized. So we need to be the first suggestion. So let's make it happen. (laughs) Let's make it happen. Um, Do you want me to do this next one or do you want to? Sure. Go for it. Okay. Uh, Our next little piece that we wanted to talk about was, I I know people could be listening to this podcast at any given moment, not right now with the current happenings, but I'm going to talk in the right now. And if you're listening to this in a year, go back and look. But yesterday, Megan and I made a post about the ASHA membership options. And then um, people started to get confused. I, myself, this is Jeanette talking, started to get confused. Um, and this this just speaks to the confusion that ASHA creates, right? Like sometimes we think that the 
confusion is there on purpose. So you can't make clear decisions. It, it continues the fear culture that we posted about recently. It all contributes to that. And so we made a second post to try to clarify. And as part of that process, we agreed we'd make that second post that I would post a reel to explain and that we would just mention it today. First of all, I have a full six minute reel on our um, Instagram and Facebook pages explaining it. And Megan was like, Jeanette, no one's ever going to watch this. Oh my gosh. I it's It's been 13 hours since I posted it and we had an entire night and it has like 3,000 views and people are like watching it and commenting on it. So thank you. I was I, I, wrong. It's a great yeah, video. I mean, you did a really good I'm, job. Of, you have visual, like, visual aids. Listen, despite what some of my professor reviews say, I am a good educator, okay? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so you can go watch that. I'm not going to talk six minutes now. What I am going to just highlight is option number four, which says... Um, it's on the, the resignation form. It's at the very bottom with four points that says you cannot supervise, you cannot clinically practice, you cannot have a student. It is very misleading, very confusing. But what that is speaking to is the membership without the CCC option. That is not open to me. It's not open to Megan. It is not open to a practicing clinician. And the best way I describe this is if you think of ASHA as a club, as a membership club, they get to decide how their their membership levels. And this membership level is for people who are not practicing clinicians or who have perhaps retired. They're no longer practicing, but they still want the benefits of the membership. So that's an $84 option you cannot practice, you can't practice. And people have asked, well, what will they do? Well, it does also say that choosing that option or resigning does not exempt you from like ethics violations. So we don't know this. This is just an assumption, but I assume they'd like file an ethics violation and kick you out of the club. Who knows? But that you're... That is only for if you are choosing that option to be a member without the CCC. If you are a practicing clinician, you cannot choose that option. You can still practice without a CCC just as a member or as a non-member of ASHA. Does that cover it all, Megan? It's so confusing. Yeah. And just like for the historical framework of this, I'm assuming that the reason they did this is because, again, it's all about control and trying to act like a regulatory body. So back in the day when people were calling themselves speech therapists when they weren't. This was a way to ensure that people who were associated with ASHA had met certain requirements, like the requirements of the CCC. I personally would argue, like, at this point, not only do consumers not know what the hell we do, like, they do not understand ASHA or the CCC at all. So, like, somebody could pay the $84 for ASHA membership and like they could just put that on their website that they're a member of ASHA and and consumers aren't going to understand like member of ASHA versus ASHA certified like it just I think ASHA in their attempt to control things created a system that makes 100% sense to them and no sense to everybody else <laughs> and that's what we're trying to tease apart here and it's, it, it is very confusing um, but yeah definitely check out Jeanette's video on Facebook and Instagram because it's very well done and I think you will and the six or seven minutes knowing very clearly what the options are. Okay, we're going to share a voicemail from a listener named Linda. 
Hi, Jeanette and Megan. This is Linda Guida calling from uh, Massachusetts. My pronoun is she. Um, I'm also Roa Girl 302 on Instagram. Um, I am not renewing my C's this year, and I want to actually tell Asha that I'm not doing that. So I want to resign it. And I can't remember from one of your podcasts how to exactly do it. I did look on the Asha site, but of course I can't find it because it's not user-friendly. So if you guys could tell me how to do that so I can actually let them know my intention is not to renew on purpose, that would be awesome. You guys are doing a great job. Love your podcasts. Look forward to all your posts on Instagram and Facebook. Um, and keep keep up the great work. Thanks a lot. Bye. Um, Rower Girl 302 gets like the biggest gets the what was the award Megan the face award that someone said oh. we should name our award she gets the face award the F what was it F Asha continuing education <laughs> award for like getting in twice today that was not planned you win yeah, you win no, we'll mail you did a not certificate. you will we'll mail you an email that says we'll send you a certificate for $35 if you want it good job so to answer the question, you have to Google resigning the certificate of clinical competence. So it's the resigning term that you need. And then you'll see a link that says CCC resigned affidavit form. And this is a PDF that you have to fill out and somehow get to them. I'm sure there's instructions on the form. There's not, but there's an address at the bottom of the form. So I guess you mail them the form. And this is where this is where we got all of the confusing information about membership without certification. So um, when you fill out this form, you can select different options. You can be a member without certification. You can discontinue your membership and change your status to not certified. So again, it's a very confusing form. And then there's a whole bunch of things that you have to agree with that are very confusing, but that's how you do it. Um, so again, that's the certificate of clinical competence resigned affidavit that you wanna look for. And also Jeanette and I were just gonna update everybody on the decisions that we're making about the CCC. And so I personally have decided to, that I don't need the C's. So the job that I have, the PRN job does not require it. My state license in Montana does not require it. Montana Medicaid does not require it. Um, I'm self-employed with Therapy Insight, so I don't have a requirement there. So I'm, again, in that position of privilege where I can decide to let it go. However, um, I've also been receiving some counsel from different entities that uh, it might be in my best interest to maintain the CCC, given different avenues that we might want to pursue to address all of the issues that we're talking about. And so my plan at this point is to not sign the uh, resigned affidavit form and just kind of say nothing and pay nothing. And that gives me a year to reinstate if I want to. And that's something that everybody has that option. So 
if you're in a position where you don't need it right now and you just want some more time to make a decision, you can pay like a late fee, I think is basically the the only thing you have to worry about if you let it go for a year. After that year, then you have to do the full reinstatement process that we've been talking about on social media. Jeanette, what about you? Yeah, so that's kind of a bummer because I know Megan really, she had made the decision to let it go and I was in the meeting where she was advised to keep it. So maybe next year. Um, For me, I've said from the beginning, I would love to let the CCC go. However, I am a full-time faculty member at an accredited institution that prepares students to pursue the CCC because they're not given that choice. And part of my load, my academic load, is um, advising, supervising in the clinic. And I I don't work at a research institution if if I want to remain full-time. I need to supervise students. So I have to keep my CCC. It is not an option at this time. That doesn't mean I don't want to let it go. It just means we just need to keep working harder so we can all have the choice because I will be the first one in line um, if it ever changes. I will (laughs) lead that charge. So that's where we're at. We just wanted to go over that again because we've had a significant increase every week. We have a significant increase in following. We're gaining an average of a thousand plus followers across two social media platforms every week. And we know not everybody's listening in or, or paying attention. So we just felt that that transparency is important. And we really just thank you for understanding. Um, but I think Megan's reason is promising. That means we're working on stuff behind the scenes. So yeah. Yeah. All right, Megan, do you want to, you want to, oh, you want. Yeah, I was just going to say, speaking of making this decision, we have someone with us um, that I would like to introduce. Her name is Mary Therese, and we've been talking basically through social media. This is the first time that the three of us have met, (laughs) and we haven't really planned anything for this conversation. But I think that Mary Therese is going through a lot of the same thought process that all of you are probably going through. And so we're just going to talk through that today. So, Mary Therese, could you start off by just telling us about yourself and your situation? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I normally go by MT, but you can call me Mary Therese if you want. Um, So I am currently a school-based clinician, and I work in um, our low-incidence classrooms in a district right outside of Philadelphia. Um, I actually started off medical. Um, So when you guys talk about tracks, it's very interesting because I was full-on, did all of my clinical practicum um, in medical placements. And then when I had a kid that also had medical needs, ended up switching over to the schools. So that's a tough conversation for me too, because I feel like there's, you know, pros and cons for both. But in terms of certification, um, Pennsylvania does not require that you have your C's to bill Medicaid. You just need your license. Um, I do have my teaching certification in Pennsylvania, which is all you really need to be a school-based SLP. So on that side, I do not need my C's. but on the other side is I am uh, close to finishing my SLPD, my clinical doctorate. Um, and that I will say the coursework that I did, especially about um, the science of teaching and learning and supervision, just like blew my mind, opened my eyes to how little evidence there is behind um, the CA requirements and what you know we're actually doing in terms of supervision and mentorship and competency. And it really kind of planted that seed even before I was listening to you guys about like, well, do I really want to be a part of this anymore? 
but I do think I want to teach. Um, there's a, as you guys have mentioned before, there are a ton of master's programs for speech pathology in the Philadelphia and in Pennsylvania in, um, in general, but particularly in the Philadelphia area. Um, and I've done supervision for students for the past couple of years and really enjoyed that. So kind of the same thing as Jeanette, if I want to have that opportunity, I think I need to hold on to my C. So I've been really stuck and kind of going back and forth and talking to other people in my cohort um, and some of my professors. But I think I have landed on a decision that I'm going to maintain my C's, but drop my membership. And as you guys explained in the reel yesterday, I need to call them and do that, which I'm kind of looking forward to because I want to see if they try to sell me on some of the features of having membership because I um, feel pretty strongly that there's a lot of things that maybe Asha is saying um, are the benefits, but either they're, you know, kind of benefits in name only, or they might be things that there are other avenues to get those things and make them available um, to clinicians. Yeah. <clears throat> I'm just looking up the membership benefits. And every time I look at this page, I get a little <laughs> confused because they conflate the CCC with membership. Like in Ash's mind, those are one in the same. And like, they don't see an issue with that. Although I just got this book called The First 75 Years, an Oral History written by Russ Malone, who was like the communications director at ASHA for a while. And there's a whole chapter in here about the bogus versus ASHA court case. And I think there was a piece of history where a lot of executive players really felt that the certification and membership needed to be split. Um, but for some reason, that has just never really happened. After the bogus case was settled, they flipped it. So it used to be that the membership was required in order to purchase the CCC. And because of different court cases that have happened in the United States, that tends to fall into the category of tying, which is illegal. And so they flipped it so that the CCC is required for membership. And then they give this, you know, they talk like the CCC is optional. Meanwhile, um, you know, they're they're sending letters to legislators to require the CCC for government entities like licensing boards and Medicaid programs. Well, but, one of the things what, that, so one thing that I know, um, just in conversation with other SLPs that they've brought up is like, oh, well, then you won't have access to journal articles. And I will say it, you know, as a school-based clinician, I'm not affiliated with the university. I'm not affiliated with the health system. Like we don't have ready access to journal articles. Um, I can't say that there's been a ton of things that I have um, found in the ASHA journal super recently that I've been like, oh, this is exactly, when I'm looking for something, I'm not necessarily going to the ASHA journal. Like I'm going to go on Google Scholar, go on Informed SLP, like kind of collect all of the things that might fit. Um, but, you know, more than half of the time, they're not ASHA journals. And every time I've ever needed something that um, I haven't been able to get access to through my ASHA membership. If I just email the researcher, then they send me a copy. Like I've never had, it, that's never been an issue. Um, and I feel like that's something that's becoming more prominent in our field. Like I know through um, like the informed SLP and CS Disseminate, like there are all these tutorials about like, if you need stuff so that you can do evidence-based practice, like here's how you get that information. And 
I, dozens of times I've emailed people um, to get access to a journal article and I've never had somebody say no. So I don't think that that's necessarily the benefit that they say it is. Um, and then advocacy is the other one. And, and there are times um, I'm active in my state association and I know that there, there have been times that like we've had specific issues with insurance companies um, and like Medicaid and stuff where ASHA has come not with me, but like with our board and like gone and like sat there and advocated to legislators with them. But the vast majority of the things that we're doing and the progress that we're seeing is coming from the state level. Like that's not something where ASHA is like swooping in and quote unquote fixing stuff for us. So I don't really see that as a benefit either. And with all the money they have, I'd love to know what's actually happening. So, I mean, I, I feel like it's, it's frustrating, but I, any money that I can keep and then maybe put towards um, professional development for myself or whatever, like I will, I'll take that $29 and do something good with it. Mm -hmm. I might and even it's, the, point. it's the precedent of the, or the, the point of the thing, you know? <laughs> yeah. And I might even point out, cause a couple people, I, 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 Megan helps with social media, but I largely spend all day answering comments. I'm largely the one in there. And so I've answered a a good handful of people's comments that have said, I'm, we're supposed to have journal article access and I can't even get them. So there's also like this other layer that is more infuriating that sometimes you do just need to re-log in and then you have your access. But some of those articles are from perspectives. And unless you are a perspective or a SIG member, which is another $45, you can't get access to the perspectives. And those aren't, MT, correct me if I'm wrong, those aren't peer even peer-reviewed articles. Those are more just... Um, no, it's like editorials. And yeah. I mean, there's some good stuff in there, but, yes, but that's yes. a great point. Like there, if you have like a specialized thing that you're trying to keep up on, like it's just another cost mm -hmm. to, have to try to get those SIG journals. And that's, that's really frustrating. And then I don't know how it is in other areas of practice, but we have the dysphagia journal, which isn't out. You don't get that from ASHA at all that you have to be a member. You have to be board certified or, or a member of. Um, what is what's do you have to be a member of wherever board certification is through? Drawing a blank, but you have to be a member. Yeah, there's of that different nonprofit boards. Yeah, to get, I'm almost positive that's how you get the dysphagia journal. I've never gotten dysphagia journal articles from ASHA. I, I get those through my university jobs, through you know the, the libraries that the one that I use the most. I'm not even getting from from ASHA as a perk. And those perspectives, those are clinicians typically writing those things or, or PhDs. Uh, like you said, reaching out to them, people who write those those kinds of articles, they are more than happy to send. I've Myself, I'm published in AJSLP. I'm published in Perspectives a couple times. Um, I'm published in some random journal that is for out of Italy about about um, dementia and literacy and people have a hard time accessing that one. So I've emailed that one out a ton of times. But like you said, um, just sending an email is is a great way to obtain an article if you can't get it. Yeah, you get $10 off the CE registry. You get about 50% off ASHA convention registration. You 
get 25% off car rentals, which I personally think is just a racket because you can find a different, you know, like <laughs> there's deals all over the place. Yeah. You can get professional liability insurance for there's $40. office max in there in there too. Isn't there an office max deal? Yeah, I don't I don't I'm not buying this one. Members can save up to 75% on over 93,000 products. Whenever I see a line like that, up to 75%, like there's probably one product that's like three dollars that's 75% off. And then the rest are like two percent off <laughs> or whatever. Like that's bullshit too. So I don't know. I mean, I, I'm just, I'm still looking at all the different member benefits and it seems like the journals are the biggest one. And then if you care about the ASHA convention, that's a pretty big discount. Otherwise, yeah, I'm not going to that <laughs> advocacy. And again, like because ASHA doesn't separate, like when you look at their tax documents, they put everything under dues. So any money that comes in from their certification product and any money that comes in from membership dues are all lumped in under dues. And then they get to spend certification money however they want. And I, I mean, I don't, I just don't know what kind of federal laws are in place, probably none, or they wouldn't be doing this, but it just, it doesn't seem fair to me that they can artificially deflate the cost of membership to $26 and artificially inflate the cost of certification to $199 if truly the certification part of their company, according to them, is 8% of their budget. So if it's 8% of their budget, then the CCC should actually cost SLPs somewhere in the range of like $12 to $15 a year. So the math has never added up <laughs> and the CCC just needs to be separate from membership. It's Asha math. Asha <laughs> math. That's, I mean, that's the hot thing right now. Girl math. Guy math. Well, Asha math. Are, Asha's technically a nonprofit, correct? Yep. So, and that's the other thing that I think is disconcerting because if you look at other nonprofits, it's not the same level of transparency. Um, like I have another speech path who her husband is an accountant. So she asked him one time, just like, hey, can you, because he does audits for nonprofits all the time. Just like, in the public um, information, like is that stuff mm -hmm. available? And the vast majority of nonprofits like post that stuff and it's really hard to find for ASHA. So that's, it's just disconcerting because yeah. you don't know where all that money's going. Right. Right. And unless I think it was a couple years ago that SLPs were asking ASHA, like, can you give us a breakdown of where the money goes. And so they've started doing these charts where it's like per dollar, you know, how much of your dollar when you, when you give it to ASHA goes to different things. Um, but all that does is confirm that the cost of, you know, randomly auditing people for CEUs and running a volunteer uh, ethics board does not cost what they're charging people for this certification. And then they kind of get away with it because they tie membership to certification and then they call it a an optional membership association. And they're so proud and they go to these, you know, big uh, association meetings and boast about their voluntary retention percentage numbers. 
And I'm sure if any SLPs were in that room, we would all be throwing tomatoes at the stage and vomiting. It's like, it's so fake. And I think that Asha has just gotten into this world of like nonprofit, like big nonprofits, like big pharma, big whatever, like big nonprofits in Washington, D.C., where like they're all kind of competing with each other. And it's just like these vanity metrics that they hold up. Um, I'm going to pull up some information about the last CEO that Asha had. There's some st- statistics that I found really interesting. Um, so, and do, do you do either of you know how to pronounce her name? No. Okay. I'm I'm not going to try to say it because it doesn't matter. I, it's just that this was um, the last CEO that retired in 2021, and during her years. As CEO, this is an article on the ASHA website. It says that she guided ASHA through significant growth and change along with the unprecedented challenges of the pandemic. Membership increased by more than 90%, the operating budget by 85%, and the staff by 36%. And to me, like when I read this article and I see ASHA celebrating those numbers, all they're doing is celebrating how big they're getting and they get to compare their themselves to other nonprofit organizations in DC and they have zero accountability to members of their association. And here the members are screaming at them <laughs> that they want more accountability. They want more transparency. They want more true advocacy. And the message over and over and over from ASHA is we're optional like I don't, we don't. You can. You don't have to be a member. You can leave any time. Or we can't do that. That's something you have to do at your state level. Yeah. That, well, and that's the cost is also challenging. You know, for grad school is really expensive, and I think that for newer clinicians, we need their voices and we need their new ideas, and we need people to be able to join these state associations. But if you're coming out of grad school with all these student loans. And you feel like you have to pay your ASHA dues. You're, I mean, I I didn't join PISHA for a long time because it just wasn't, I didn't see as much benefit because especially when I was a newer clinician, I <laughs> very much thought Big Daddy ASHA was like the be all end all and like thought that like I would send emails or like, you know, call the member center or whatever and ask questions and never really got any responses and didn't really understand that they're so limited in their ability to do anything in our individual workplaces or even in like our systems and any sort of policymaking has to come from the state level. But first of all, I don't think a ton of people know that and they just get really, really bad at ASHA because they're not doing anything. And then it's also, if they do understand that the cost is keeping people from joining, it's keeping people from maybe joining their state association. It's keeping them from spending money on like high quality CEUs. Like we don't even get a whole lot of that stuff as part of our membership. And it's not improving our field at all, which is really, I think that's what um, I would like to actually, like I want to want to be part of ASHA, but at this point, so many of the students that I work with, you know, from grad schools, they're coming out and they don't feel like they're prepared. Well, that's like, they don't have that many jobs. That's one of their jobs is make sure that people are able to do what they're supposed to be doing. And Advocating for us, when you look at some of the things you guys have posted about, like how they're spending this advocacy money, it's just to make things more challenging to break away from them. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to circle back, Megan, to what 
you said about the CEO. Do we know when she started? What was her first? Yeah, she year? was there for 17 years. And okay, she that, that's and... enough. Yeah. Okay. So also, she she did not create a national recession. So she was she was the CEO in I think I talked about this on the last podcast, 2007, 2008, when the housing market crashed and people were really, really struggling. I'm just going to put this out there. I bought a condo in Columbus, Ohio in 2008 for $46,000. My mortgage was like 310 bucks. Okay. You cannot do that now, but people were struggling. And that is when we saw a boom in speech pathology because people became smarter and wanted to get a return on investment with their the, the dollars they were spending in college. They wanted to know that they had a job at the end of the line. And during that time, we really, really were experiencing a nationwide shortage of speech language pathologists. So that's, you know, that is when this like huge boom in our field started. She had nothing to do with that. That was people getting smarter, seeing that at the time, not anymore, but seeing that there was money in healthcare, knowing that this was like a great helping profession where you had a lot of options to work with kids or adults or, you know, different settings. Like there are so many good things about being a speech language pathologist. And and she just so happened to be a part of that. And that's why the budget went up. The budget went up because you forced us to join. And now, you know, now all of these people are are becoming speech pathologists but then they've it you know they have no discretion when they approve universities to start graduate programs so now this is why we and and mt said earlier there's a lot a colleague and i um pam smith spent all last year researching um for some talks that we called the state of the adjunct. And we researched every program, every every program that was a candidacy program. Well, how many programs were in each state? Pennsylvania was one of the highest. And this started to start to address, uh, people were doing this to address this bottleneck. So then, you know, universities are getting in on this, like, oh, there's all these universities that need service. Let's start graduate programs. We can make more money. Of course, they're going to do that. It's a business. But ASHA and the CAA are not saying enough. They just keep opening more and more and more programs. And these students are bred, basically, to get their CCC to join ASHA. And it just keeps dumping more and more and more money into the system. And it, this, you know, sh that had nothing to do with this woman. <laughs> you know, it's just everybody, everybody, people needed money. And now everybody's trying to get money. Uh, that's just, and, and that's probably one of the many layers of this. But I just want to point that out. Like we're, we're in a position now. I remember, um, Several years ago, a chair of a department said to me, this is the first year I have ever seen our graduates compete for jobs locally. And I forget where I was living or, or where that was happening at. But I mean, there used to be so many jobs that, you know, every everybody just had a job. I had a job before I even started my last semester for, of school. And I've, I'm sure I've mentioned on this podcast before, I was an awful student, like <laughs> failing the praxis, like sleeping during class, like 
I had a job. I, it was the only place I interviewed. So it's just, it's just, it's a mess. And that's why the budget, that's one of the reasons why the budget has gone up because they just keep taking more and more and more people who are paying into the system. And then Megan, as you've said, it's like an MLM, like you have to pay to, 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 to let the other people pay. And, you know, it's just. Yeah. And when you look at. really fired like, up. I need to breathe. <laughs> Asha has added, and this is very strategic. And, and I know that staff is pressured to come up with like non-membership revenue. And so when you look at the programs that they've implemented in the last few years, they're these add-on things that don't come with membership. And that's also increasing revenue for them. And can I just read a another paragraph from this article? <laughs> so it's the middle of the article. So it's kind of going to come out of nowhere. But Williams added that Arlene is held in high regard by her peers in association management, an assessment that is shared well beyond ASHA. She is the current, or she was the current past chair of the Council of Engineering and Scientific Society Executives and a former chair of the American Society of Association Executives. In 2018, she was presented with their key award, which honors the association CEO, quote, who demonstrates exceptional qualities of leadership and a deep commitment to voluntary membership organizations as a whole. That same year, she was recognized as Association Executive of the Year by Association Trends, and in 2015, as the Professional Society CEO of the Year by CEO Update. Like, this person is not interested in making things better for SLPs. This person is interested in all of the vanity metrics and how much money ASHA can make and how, mu how much, quote, voluntary membership retention she can show off and how many awards she can win for doing these things that are not representative of what SLPs actually think and feel about this, quote, optional membership association. Something you said in the podcast, um, I don't remember which episode it was, but also that if you look at the mission, the stated mission of ASHA, there's nothing in there about advocating for SLPs. It's for the public and for, you know, the people that we're providing services to. But even if that's the main point and why they have all this money, like why isn't something being done to um, make sure that clinicians are adequately prepared and that like making sure the people we graduate are like safe for the public, um, you know, kind of how, I know you guys have talked about, you know, what some people do and don't in terms of competencies, but with all these programs and with placements getting more competitive and um, lack of, I guess, uniform standards, some of that money I feel like should be spent on trying to make sure that these programs are getting people out there that know what they're doing. And that's, I think we all know that's not the case right now. And that, But I do wonder if more people start to opt out of the membership, like even if they do decide to hold on to their C's for whatever reason, but we as a larger group start saying like, yeah, that's fine. We have other ways of getting these quote unquote benefits. Um, you know, it's not a ton of money back in our pocket, but it does make the point that we don't really need this. Um, I have, I was so excited because I just live in this little small town in Ohio where I don't know a lot of other people who do the kinds of things that I do. There aren't, you know, when I lived in Philadelphia with a ton of universities, you know, there, it was very diverse and lots of different people and 
people who had PhDs and, and couples who had different last names, right? Like all those things that doesn't happen here. And so my very first friend or not friend, but a, an early friend that I made, what is a former professor from Pitt and we got to talking at a, we were at a birthday party that our girls were invited to. And I was so excited to meet another woman who had spent time in academia in this area. And she left to be a mom, but she, she was not, um, she didn't do teaching. She wasn't on the teaching side. She was in curriculum development. So as a scientist, um, I think math, and, and uh, gosh, uh, so much respect for her. I'll say that in, in a few minutes. I'll save that. But her job was to develop curriculum both for the university and then to publish that curriculum. And so as I was telling her what I do and, you know, getting in, getting into, I think I was getting ready to start at the university where I'm at now. Um, she's like, oh, you should be publishing that stuff. And I just looked at her sideways like what? Because we don't do that in this field. Nobody is publishing. And it's a, I've thought about it a lot. Why aren't we doing that? It, it, why aren't we publishing standard curriculums for all of us to follow? Like, it just makes so much sense. And, you know, where she was like a staff person dedicated to doing that, we don't have that at all. As professors, we're just like out there swimming and trying to survive, you know, making it up as we go sometimes, which isn't how it should be. Um, it doesn't, but I, I totally respect her too, because, you know, if I, and I've done this, if I leave the field for a couple of years, I can instantly get a job as a professor as like a math professor. They're a dime a dozen. Like she left that job to be a mom and she knows she's never going back. And so that's, that made me sad for her. But um, yeah, we need to be doing something like that. But that could be maybe a revised role for ASHA, you know, if they want to advocate for more uniformity between the programs and say, here's the standards, here's the curriculum we're going to use, maybe even here's how you need to make sure that the people that are doing the teaching um, are trained ahead of time. I mean, I, I remember one of the first professors I had, and she was a delightful person, but she had just finished her PhD. I think she was maybe a year or two older than I was. And she was thrown into this classroom and she looked like she was going to throw up on her own shoes. And it was a tough semester for all of us because I just think that she didn't have the teaching skill set, even though she knew all of the stuff, like she knew the content, mm -hmm. but she didn't actually know how to teach. And it's, yep. it's something I didn't realize that like, there's no training for these people that are going in and actually doing our student development. Um, yeah. And there's the supervisory and mentorship standards that ASHA publishes. But if you read through them, like there's no first year or second year clinician that has that skill set. And there's no yeah. oversight. Like nobody's oh. checking on any of this stuff. You just sign your ethics thing every year and say, yep, I'm doing it. So like that might be a more appropriate role. I know they're not regulating us, but if they're regulating the CAA and they can say, mm -hmm. Here's the standards. Here's what we're going to do. Like I know switching over to a full on competency based model is a huge ask, but other countries have done it. Like Australia's done it. Canada's done it. Like, yeah, it's not, it's not a huge ask. I, I personally do not feel as someone who has paid for this degree. It's not a big ask. It's, it's the bare minimum <laughs> that this field should be doing for students. And I think and I'm thinking for, of in terms of the like the instructors. Yeah. Yeah. Not just for students, for the people we serve. Mm -hmm. Period. I, mm -hmm. I just, 
And I, I want to bring this up because it came up on social media yesterday and I, I kind of called it out. There was a, again, I'm sorry, I do dysphagia. So that's the stuff I pay attention to. There is a very good article that came out um, and I, I'm sorry, whoever I'm missing, but it was like Bice, Ward, and I think a couple other people on the role of instrumentals and um, how many people are being overdiagnosed with dysphagia. It's a staggering number. And so I posted it in a Facebook group and said, if you're treating dysphagia, like this is a must read. And somebody underneath it said, I already don't have enough hours. I have to work as a, as a director of rehab and just get my couple hours of treatment, <laughs> even, even to just get a full-time oh job. And it's when it's when people start screaming union and and all of these things that that they start pulling these articles out from nowhere. And and now I'm not going to have a job. And I was like, um, excuse me, you are teetering very close to saying and, and truly, I felt like this is what this person was saying. I don't care about what the patient needs. I don't care about what the patient's problem is. All I care about is that I need a job. And so I'm going to treat incompetently and blindly so I can fill my caseload to an eight hour day and go home yeah. and get my paycheck. Like that's what that person said. And it's because of these competency issues that people were agreeing with this person. Like we can't <laughs> even get ahead because we have people out there who who got out of grad school, they might've had a great grad school education, but I see this. I, I, I really drill my dysphagia students, but they get out there and not all CIs are like this, but they get out there with these CIs who have no idea what they're doing and, and unteach everything that we've just taught for 16 weeks. And so the student unlearns there and then they go to their first job where they're working with someone who hasn't kept up and they unlearn some more and they forget what they learned a year ago. And they just like add to this incompetency that is just so rampant that, yeah, then we have this person who would rather just not know what's wrong with the patient so they can get a paycheck. And I said, if you had cancer or didn't have cancer, you wouldn't want your oncologist giving you chemo so he could, you know, fill his work day. If that happened, that doctor would lose his license. I mean, we should be held to that yep. same standard. If we are yep. giving treatment to a patient who doesn't need it and we've gone about it in an incompetent manner with all without all of the information, we should lose our license for that. I mean, period. Yep. I was just I, I was like, did I actually just read this? Like this 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 article is written and published by like but, but that's... Very smart people. This was a very smart article. And like, oh, the comments underneath, I was just like, I can't. But I that have... mindset is everywhere. That's everywhere. I know. Like you can meet any SLP in any town who's building up their hours just to fill the oh, day. Right. But that's, but I think the baseline of this yeah. is what we're saying is that because there's no competency, because there's no standard, because we don't know what we're teaching. I've struggled with the same thing. We had someone, hi, if you're listening, um, a student that I had, I, I assume she was uh, an undergrad the very first year I taught neuro in Western PA. She's like, I think you, you, you were my professor. And I did, I know, I remember my grad students and I didn't recognize her name. So I'm almost positive I had her for neuro because I taught three sections. Um, 
and I said, oh, hey, yes, I was there. And and I actually said, and I'm sorry, because it was a shit show. <laughs> like, just like MT said, I don't think students or, or even practicing clinicians realize we aren't handed a class when we start a job. People in academia are very protective of their work. They're not handing you fully established classes. When you walk into a classroom for the first time, you are building that class week by week. And if you're if you're delivering a good PowerPoint, you are spending hours on a three-hour lecture, hours and hours and days and days and days. And when this is someone's first job and they're thrown into a, a three or four load, which means they're teaching three or four different classes, the development that it takes is insane. I remember sometimes I was up at 4 a.m. to work on my lectures uh, just, just so I could have decent lectures that first and second year of teaching. It is brutal. And we are in no way being compensated to be putting in that kind of work. But there's nothing out there. You can't just go buy a course. You can't, you can't just like call it. No one's giving you stuff unless you have really, really, really good relationships with mentors who, and even then sometimes they're not willing to hand you everything. Um, it's rough. It's rough. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, oh, go ahead, MT. No, it just, it's also making me think about the, the people that are, you know, and I don't want to further exacerbate like the whole like research practice gap thing, but I think there are so many professors and, and I had some professors that were, you know, scientists, PhDs, they weren't practicing clinically, but if they're taking that information and they have to check all these boxes of like, these are the things they should be learning in this class, even if they weren't handed them or handed that, um, the coursework, but they, they know what they're supposed to be teaching. There's a lot of grad students that like they can memorize something, they can spit it back. It doesn't mean at all that they're actually going to know how to apply that information. And if the professor may not actually know how to apply that information because they're not practicing, like it's not, not creating clinicians, it's creating like parents that can just say things back. And yeah. there's so many pieces missing in our graduate school education that like, I know in grad school, when I was there, it was, it was so competitive. Like it was, everyone was like very protective of their own stuff. There was no collaboration. It was just like, you know, get the best grade possible so you can get the best placement possible. And like, I get the sense that not a ton has changed in the past 15 years. Um, but then the minute you're a practicing clinician, you're all you're all of a sudden supposed to like have all these skills where you're like super collaborative and you can do interprofessional practice and you should be able to like give and receive feedback. None of that's happening in, in the vast majority of grad school programs because you're just like, stuffing your brain with all this information and then being sent off to like, go do something with it. Yep. Yeah. And <laughs> just to keep on this track with a little different shift is like, if we look at the CAA, cause this is where it gets like, where should these standards be housed and how should they be distributed? And I think it should be, I mean, the most logical answer at this point, and I don't know if this is the only way, but it should be the CAA. And the thing I don't understand about the CAA is like, it's all run on volunteers. And then they do this practice analysis that creates the standards for the curriculum and the praxis and the CCC. 
and like people volunteer their time to complete that survey and then they turn around and charge $44 for it or whatever. Like the CAA, how it operates and how it runs doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. And I think that audiologists have felt the same way. And that's why they started a whole separate accrediting body that was entirely, they were very intentional that it could not be attached to a national association because then you get all these conflicts of interest, which I think personally, my opinion is that there are conflicts of interest between the CAA and ASHA. And especially when you throw the CCC in and it all comes down to money. And when they're so concerned with you know, winning all these awards with association executive boards and whatever, like, and they're not really thinking through how this all works and how it's all affecting instructors and students and supervisors, then you end up with this mess that we're all in that we're trying to untangle. And Jeanette, I know, I think it was after we left New Orleans last year, I was talking to you from an airport and I was like, we should just make our own accrediting body. And like, there have been a lot of a lot of conversations that Jenna and I have had before we started Fix SLP of like we should make our own association, we should make our yeah. own whatever, and like the we keep coming back to like it's not necessarily about starting from scratch. It's about SLPs taking our power back and collectively deciding how this should be run. Like if Jeanette and I just create another controlling body, then okay, maybe there's another option, but it's not we're not shifting towards a culture where SLPs are collaborative, where they're sharing information, where there's a collective goal of competent practice and good patient care. We're just continuing to rely on these, you know, older patriarchal controlling systems to tell us who we are and what we do. And we're here to say that SLPs, like we get to decide who we are. We're such a young profession. We have so much ahead of us. We have so many problems that we really can solve. Like these are all very solvable problems and we get to decide the fate of our profession. Not Asha, not me, not Jeanette. Like we all get to do that collectively. And I think it is a cultural shift towards collaboration um, that needs to happen. And that shift comes when we all recognize our own power. I think one step on the way to doing that is continuing to educate. Like Megan and I will keep putting content out there, but all of you have to keep sharing our stuff or the things you're share, the things you're learning with us. Um, You know, certainly people are sending us stuff now often, but you know, just everybody, if we are going to change the culture, we, as in all of us, we all have to take a part in this movement. We all have to be, part of this army that is saying enough is enough. No more. We're, we are going to make a change. And you, so everybody just has to keep sharing and inviting people to this information. And, you know, not everyone is going to want to hear it. Like, like me, like all, most of my colleagues have no interest in hearing what I'm saying right now. Um, but maybe someday our PhD friends will come alongside. Can you imagine like if every PhD was like, yes, let's get a curriculum yeah. that is standardized. How fast that would happen? It's such a shame that there's that disconnect because honestly, if, if the graduate programs as a collective decided that, you know, they're not happy with the outcomes and they want to shift to competency, like it would happen. 
if they all kind right. of came together and did that. And I'm, I'm so curious, because you said, like, our field is so young, and that it's, it's 100% true. I'm curious what sort of like the tipping point was, and what the chain of events was when medicine in the United States switched over to all competency based. And I just I'm wondering how that happened. And if there are other fields that we can learn from and sort of figure out like, okay, well, they were doing it this or even other countries, like they were doing it this way. What was sort of that, um, that thing that made them decide to switch over? And was it based on the training programs? Was it based on the actual clinicians that were practicing? Did it come from? I don't know, I don't even know what the name of like the medical association is. But like, there's probably kind of templates for how we could do this. But it would have to be something that the programs or the graduate programs would have to get on board with. And then the individual clinicians could advocate for it as well. Yeah. And I don't know the answer to that. I only know that Australia is leading the charge in competency-based standards for SLPs and that originated from a PhD publishing. But wait, there's more. (laughs) Australia is leading that charge. But one of our fearless fixers messaged us on social media the other day to say that if you want reciprocity, so if someone wants to move from the USA to Australia to practice, in order to get licensed in Australia, they have to come with the CCC. So yeah, how much does Australia that... even understand competency, I have to ask? Right. Yeah, very true. Very true. And if you look at the meeting minutes from the boards over the last few years, they're I mean, that's what they're doing is going to other countries and making sure that that requirement is there, just like they're going to state licensing boards and Medicaid for, I mean, they're just going all over the world, planting the seed that their certification is God's gift to humanity and that they should implement it as their requirement. This has to stop. I wasn't angry before we started. Listen, the last two days I've messaged Megan, let's, let's record today. I'm feeling really spicy. Today I woke up tired AF because I've been sick for over a week now. And I like Megan, you know, I messaged Megan. I was like, I fed my kids breakfast at 11 a.m. Okay. I was dragging this morning, but man, now I'm like so angry. I have a, I know we're running out of time, but I have a question for both of you that I would just love to hear you riff on a little bit. If we have time, do you have time, MD? Yeah, it's good. Okay. What would it take to change the supervision requirement in academia. And I know, Jeanette, you've talked about like enough people would have to quit the CCC and then there wouldn't be enough supervisors. But is there a way to do this more efficiently? Yes. I They changed the standards every, what is it, four years, MT? Do you know? I feel like it's every four years the standards change. Um, yes, I believe it. But it's also not based on anything. Like the supervisor no, well, requirements are not like based on I, evidence. It's just I like, think they do. I think they do little surveys. I would assume. But I'm saying it's not based on like. Studies. No, it's like they survey people and say, "What do you think about this?" Yeah. Which I mean, everything's based on surveys, which is completely insane. Like, yes. make sure everyone's using evidence-based practice, but none of our standards are going to be based on any evidence. Um, just people opinions. Now you're going to decide. <laughs> they decide what's on the surveys that are sent. It's not fill in the blank right. surveys. They right. send the surveys. Yeah. So the standards are changed. So in the next standard cycle, and honest to God, is there a rule that says they can't break out of the cycle and add, you know, a a extra fix, if you will, a little bonus, uh, like a bonus cycle. Um, 
they you know they could at any time they could they do it's and not these are, like sorry these are this is the caa yes yes the not CAA, asha not at well okay the caa, the CAA has CAA. separate separate supervision requirements yes mm-hmm. right because mm-hmm. they don't yeah. require the ccc because they can't because they would be shut down now listen i i'm gonna challenge that i haven't seen the paperwork it would probably be easy for us to get our hands on i think that they have to sign off I think programs have to sign off that their students have been supervised by people with the CCC because we have to collect that information. We have to collect their the their ASHA card or their ASHA number and keep that on file. Um, I know, but when I was looking at the um, CAA guidebook, whatever, that was not, the CCC was not mentioned in there. And that's when I started thinking like, okay, why not? And then, and then that, that led me to realize that ASHA is aware that there's all these conflicts of interest. And so the, um, cert- pull it, up. it might not be direct. It, it might be in the documentation, maybe that the, the program director has to sign off on at the end of their program. If you are a program director or a chair, the only one in the U.S. listening to us, could you could could you be in contact at team at fixslp.com and let us know? Um, there's some okay. Here's what it is. So I'm looking at it, and it says it the graduate program that prepares students for the degree required to qualify for credentials to practice independently in the profession. For example, ASHA's Certificate of Clinical Competency we've had, and state licensure. We've had a I, follower who has messaged us or emailed us or something and said, I have to sign off that they've been supervised by a CCC supervisor. Right. But that's that's because the department has, that's their own internal department rule because they're trying to, because remember, there have been students who weren't supervised by someone with the CCC and then they, and they didn't know that. And then they went to apply for the CCC and it didn't count. So I think all these universities just default to having that paperwork and requiring the CCC just because they assume that all of their students are going to apply. I have to wonder, like when you get accredited, there's, they'll audit your Calypso. I, I have to wonder if the audit includes looking for the, the ASHA card, because that's something that a lot of universities they, upload. Why would they be auditing Calypso? They might, but I don't think that it's not in. They might be doing that because that's how they've always done it. And they're wanting to make sure that students are like informed that supervisors have the CCC or not. But I, what I've everything I've read, they don't have any requirements for the CCC because they know that that would be an absolute violation. I'm going to add this to my list of things to dig into just so we can yeah. be sure. So everyone, yeah. I, I've got like the Toby Dynavox, Pranky Romic thing. <laughs> this, a full-time job, a Girl Scout troop. We'll get <laughs> to it. I won't forget. Uh, but what it would take is changing the standard to say, I, I think very specifically, just that in order to apply for the CCC, so this would be Asha saying it, to apply for the CCC, you can be supervised by a licensed speech pathologist, licensed by any of the 50 states, Washington, D.C., 
in the USA, period. But they're like, never going to do that. No, they won't, but it's that easy. All they, and it wouldn't, hmm. it wouldn't be something that would happen overnight. Obviously when changes happen, you know, a couple years out, right? Like, and anybody who graduates after this time will be subject to these standards and anyone so after, and that's why where all of these rumors are like, oh, I had to do schoolwork and redo all of this stuff. That's how that happens. That when you apply yeah. for the CCC, what's, standard year are you held to um so you know they'd, they'd have to announce it out quite a bit so people are ready for that change um although it would be a helpful change you wouldn't even need to, it wouldn't hurt anyone it would only help people really so you wouldn't have to give it they they could make the change in a meeting as soon as we publish this podcast and it would hurt no one it would help everyone right that's that, I... that easy they won't do it but it's that easy less than being naive I think also maybe having, um, I don't know how it would be enforced, but having more rigorous standards for supervision and mentorship, because it's, yeah. it's horrifying to me that, you know, you just have to have your seat and been practicing one year. I knew yeah. nothing. And Thank I had also God. just like switched pra within like three years of practicing. I switched practice areas. I could have technically been supervising somebody in Same. a school-based setting and I had no idea what I was doing. And Same. there was no one checking up on me because Same. I am in Pennsylvania considered a teacher. So I'm not being evaluated by any other, like, I'm not being evaluated by anybody that really nitty gritty knows what I'm doing and what I should know and shouldn't know. So, I mean, a lot of it comes down to this, this issue of quality. Um, and I don't know what that would look like from the supervisor level, but it's such a huge um, deficit in our field is like having quality mentorship, having quality supervision. And that if that is something that could be more prioritized, it would have a trickle down effect, I think, of making things better for so many clinicians and so many workplaces, but also like it would help with retention. Because I know, I mean, of my cohort, less than half of us are still practicing. Um, and they, you know, they found something else. And that's fine. But it's people are just like running away from the field because it's it's hard. It's hard work. And there's not a lot of support. Yeah. And if I would have been supervising in those early days, I would have been like, and here's how you copy other clinicians notes. <laughs> <laughs> and again, okay, so this is all making me think that we, um, like, Jeanette, I was thinking of your conversation with the Hawaii State Association from the last episode and how they are wanting to increase the quality of patient care that's provided. Um any state can enact legislation that more clearly defines um, a provisional license and the supervision requirements for that. So any of us can go to our state licensing boards and start shaping these changes. And I think one thing that maybe could come from Fix SLP is this national conversation of what does it take to be an SLP? And what do we recommend for state licensing boards to consider? And it's really a grassroots effort of all of us really thinking critically about what we needed and what we would like the future generations to have. And then enacting that legislation and not waiting for a body like ASHA to dictate it because they've demonstrated that they don't have the capacity to do that without huge financial conflicts of interest. Well, I think also understanding like how to and to not get things done like if more SLPs really understood that 
I think, what was the one episode you have was like Asha's not coming to save us like it's not happening and it's not even that they're not like that they don't want to it's that they can't so if you yeah. if more people understand where to put their advocacy efforts and advocacy money and time you know take all the the time and energy you're spending not you guys personally but SOPs in general take all that time and energy you're spending being pissed off at Asha and realize like you could take that same money and join your state association and be more involved with that or like get in touch with legislators in your area and make sure they actually know who we are and and what we're doing or if you're in a school you know joining your association or union and making sure that they're aware of what we're doing and what the value is and that they're advocating for um issues of caseload or workload or whatever i think that that is so valuable and something that so few people really understand that we we do have a voice but you have to know where to use it for it to be effective and it's not asha yeah yeah i agree that's i that's why i'm so hopeful about this series we're doing where we're hoping to interview every state association and see what's going on and see how SLPs can communicate with them and communicate what they'd like to see and, and get involved. Um, especially like the, to join Hasha, it was 50 bucks a year. So a couple people have asked us like, oh, now that I'm saving this $26 or now that I'm saving $225, what should I do? Well, if you're saving $225, go join your state association. MT, I think ours is $75, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, go join your state association and then go have a nice like meal and like send me a coffee with the change. Like you I, you know to join your state association is so much cheaper and to get involved and um be and a it's part getting of that, things done. Yeah, be a part of that community too. You know, I've met some really nice people uh, in Pisha that I I don't know them well yet. I've only been volunteering for a year, but um, these are people, and I'm not implying that people at ASHA don't care. There are a lot of people volunteering at ASHA because they wish to make a difference. But with the level of bureaucracy happening there, that difference is very hard to make. That type of bureaucracy doesn't typically exist in these little state associations that are barely surviving. They're happy you're there. They want your opinion. They'll have a job for you. They'll have 10 jobs for you if that's what you want. And I, I think it's a much way, a much better way to spend our time to, to make the changes that we need to see. And we're, I mean, I'll speak to Pisha specifically. We're as like either committee heads or as um, people on the board, we're reviewing legislation at every single meeting. Like anything that even comes in contact with the world of SLP, we're reviewing that and then we're writing letters or we're like actually going to the meetings and like advocating for things like there's real everyday progress happening at that state level that I mean the cool part about being involved in it is you can see it and then you can see like oh my gosh this passed this is going to make my life better in this way I don't think that that because the transparency isn't there with ASHA you're never going to see that so even if you buy into you know they're advocating for us in whatever way they purport to be doing so it's gonna be really hard to find that information i love that there's been like we're hooked up with um somebody from the board of special education in pennsylvania now and she's like attending some of our meetings and helping us problem solve like what's the best way to get information oh. out you know, specifically to school districts so they understand how our job has changed in the past 
10, 15 years. Like my case looks totally different than it did even five years ago because of the student population. And, you know, kids, when I used to work in a NICU, they, they were, you know, 27, 28 weeks and maybe they were going to be okay. Maybe they weren't like I have multiple 22 weekers on my caseload right now. They're in kindergarten. And like we, as a collective of school speech pathologists are not necessarily trained for that population. Um, and people at the um, government level have, first of all, they have no idea what we do for the most part, but they have no idea why a caseload cap of 65 is wildly inappropriate right now. And that that's not, it's like more of like a suggestion. Like you don't necessarily have to only have 65. You can case manage 65. I know I'm getting very Pennsylvania heavy right now, but I'm just saying like having been involved in this process and getting to see what changes are actually possible. And that it's, if you have enough people um, really trying to move in the same direction and have the same values and have the same goals, like things do happen. And I, I don't know how that would even be possible with a larger organization. So I'm obviously super uh, passionate about people joining their state organizations. And if you live in Pennsylvania, please email me. (laughs) Yeah. Come join us, please. And I mean, this is not to, I'm not, I don't have like deep seated patriotism, but the United States is a really unique country in that we have all these different States and we have so much grassroots um, energy that we can plug into. Um, and that's just not the case everywhere in the world. So I think especially in the United States, if you're an SLP in this country, just realize like our, our government system is set up for you to uh, have a voice. And so even though it doesn't feel like we've had a voice as SLPs, it is there and we just have to find it and use it. Yeah. Do you think this is a good time to wrap up, Megan? I don't know how long we've yeah. been recording, but I feel like we're going <laughs> long. Yeah. Before we Thank wrap you, up, MT. yeah, of before course. We, Thanks for chatting, guys. Before we wrap up, I do want to highlight one more thing that I think got posted. Oh, it got posted today onto our social media. Um, we have a, a a slide deck that shows what progress looks like. So early on, as we were looking at regulations for states, we and by we I mean Megan found a discrepancy in what was required to practice in New Jersey. And so we don't just put things out there and then forget about it. We were doing some following up and on the um, New Jersey State Association website, when you look at the licensing and certification information under the speech language pathology license, it says content is currently under review. And so when Megan's Set, like sent me that I said we have to tell our fixers about this because that would have never happened if it wasn't for fix SLP right and by the way we just found a, a big discrepancy somewhere like this morning so maybe we'll be making some more changes but um not with New Jersey but um that that's so cool to kind of the see the fruits of our labor so New Jersey good for you to the New Jersey's Speech Language Hearing Association, we want you to come on and talk about this. Once it's settled, once you figure it out, um, this is cool. And, like, these and are the talk about all the other cool things you're doing because they're yes, doing that's great true, things. But, yeah. but this is why this is why we're fixing SLP. Like even if that's the <laughs> only thing we ever accomplish, like people in New Jersey are going to have clarity now. So I just am really excited about it. I said we had to put it out there and show it because 
I mean, this is just a, like a tiny, tiny, tiny little win, but hopefully this will be the first of many and hopefully the wins get bigger as time goes on. So yay. Yay. <laughs> Anything else either of you have for today? All right, everybody. I'll sign off then. Thanks for fixing it. Bye. Bye everybody. Bye.